0: Shaz and Ayman and you're listening to Copy and Compositions. Woo-hoo. It is my absolute honor to introduce our speaker for today. We welcome Yang Ahmad Mulia Tunku Al-Abidin, truly a man of the people and an inspiration of the Malaysian youth. Among others, he is the founding president of the Institute of De- for Democracy and Economic Affairs, Ideas Malaysia, a trustee of Yayasan Chowkit along with Yasan Munara, He's a very intellectual man and you can find him every week through his newspaper column in The Star called Abidin Ideas. Welcome,
1: Welcome to the show. Pleasure <laughs> <laughs> to be me. here.
2: Uh, thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. I should clarify, it's it. Yeah, you can say it's uh, the column is Abidin Ideas, but it's also a bid in ideas.
1: Oh! oh. oh. Okay. <laughs> you that makes a lot oh, of sense yeah. <laughs> because usually yeah. if they, if they if it's a bit in ideas, they'll put like a maybe a cheeky capital I, you know. That's very cheeky. But they don't, so I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, well, that makes
0: sense. <laughs> Aiman, take us away yep. for, with the question. Yep. Thank you again to Kuzin for being our guest for today. Um, so the first question is, um, you are the son of the young dipertuan besar of Negeri Sembilan in Malaysia. So we are very curious, um, what is your motivation really to invest your time in starting these initiatives?
2: I think that's a very um, interesting way to ask the question. I think the first phrase is completely irrelevant to the question. What, who, regardless of whose child I was, I would like to think <laughs> that my motivation stays the same, which is, um, uh, I guess, to, to be of some uh, use, to share some Ideas to um, you know, and if anyone is interested in hearing uh, about what I have to say, then I'm very happy to to share what I have to offer. Um, I guess a more personal way to answer the question is that when I was growing up, I was always interested. I mean, in school, right? I was always interested in uh, the social sciences. I loved history. I loved geography, um, and that led me to pursue um, you know sociology, comparative politics. Um, and history at university. So I've always had an interest in how human beings have evolved over time, how societies have uh, established themselves, how, how civilizations rise and fall. Um, and I suppose um, that's given me a natural gravitation towards, you know, what about, what about Malaysian society? What about mm-hmm. um, the various civilizations, cultures, heritages, traditions that exist in Malaysia? how can um, every uh, and of course not the political theory so that the side comes in and says um you know how how can we ensure that uh, all malaysian citizens are able to to express themselves are able to share in the fruit um of of what the country has to offer i guess that's my motivation from a personal level
1: interesting i mean your university i mean even it, it, to pronounce all of the subjects that you've done you know it was
0: it was quite, yeah. a, quite a mouthful right <laughs> and, and the viewers can see this video now but if they can see it you can see your big collection of books behind you as well so
1: so from all of that like how did you actually extract from all the learnings that you have to actually you know put it into work in you know in your initiatives like uh, uh ideas and yaya samunara, like what was the
2: each of these organizations I'm involved with, I think has its own story. I can't yep. say that I am equally, um, you know, a founder of all of those various things there are some of those, which I joined very much later on. But when you talk about ideas, uh, this is something that had its roots in, in London, I was, uh, I think this was 2003, 2004. So I was at the London School of Economics and I've already mentioned my sort of my academic journey I was I was studying uh, sociology and government interested in, in, in political philosophy and and by virtue of that I you know I, I got to learn a lot about British politics I met a lot of British people who were involved in, uh, in politics but also involved in think tanks which was a completely mm-hmm. new uh, concept for me I had to learn- was, why do they exist, what are they trying to achieve, how do they achieve it. And at that same time as, that I, was, uh, as I was learning that, um, I think at that time, uh, blogs were quite popular. So I was reading a few blogs, and I, I, and I got into touch with two other uh, Malaysians living in, in the UK, uh, one Saiful and uh, one Muhammad Fredaus. And uh, we decided that, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was a think tank um, that looked at Malaysian issues? so we set something up this is 2005 2006 uh, by then uh, we established uh, you know a very uh, straightforward name the malaysia think tank london mm, and yeah. <laughs> we 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 at that time we already thought you know okay so obviously a lot of different people are going to have very different ideas about what the future of malaysia should look like um and if you recall you know, my, when I was at university, a lot of the Malaysian students were caught up in the Reformasi movement, right? And mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. had sort of evolved in its own way. So, what we decided to do was to find something that everyone could agree, that most Malaysians um, could agree on. And that was the sort of the, the spirit of Medeca. It was um, that, uh, you know, centered around Tunku Abdul Rahman. You know, every Malaysian. Uh, knows that uh, pose of Tunku Abdul Rahman proclaiming Merdeka. I think every Malaysian um, has, well, we thought at the time, <laughs> that most, the vast majority of Malaysians would have some affinity for Tunku Abdul Rahman. So that, that's a great place to start, right, to create a conversation about what it was that he believed in, what it was that that Merdeka generation intended to see for this new country called uh, the Federation of Malaya and then later uh, in 1963 of Malaysia. So it started off in that way and it sort of evolved in its own uh, energy uh, because we, we had a few uh, events, um, you know, I think we, we had event, our early, our early events were about some media freedom, about rule of law mm-hmm. um, and sort of th- we were uh, v- very much encouraged by the uh, attendees that we got and I guess from there, it was a natural step when all of three of us were back in Malaysia in 2009 that we should sort of relaunch this uh, in a more proper way. And that's how we came up with the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs uh, ideas that explicitly um, took from these principles that we believe Tunku Abdul Rahman had. So rule of law, government that, is, that knows its boundaries, um, free market uh and um uh individual uh uh, liberty uh and i think since then the growth has been uh you know obviously uh it's that's that's 10 years already right so um the, the the you know ideas has had uh you know, various changes in terms of its leadership, in terms of its board composition, in terms of its staff size. But I think also we've become a lot more uh, familiar, even pragmatic, in how we mm-hmm. pursue uh, the mission of achieving those principles.
1: Yeah. So I guess uh, it was a nice way for you to actually <laughs> end that story because, you know, Ayman and I we 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 actually follow ideas on Instagram, and you know, lately it's been about you know no uglcs and a lot of the topics are actually really really interesting so you know that sort of prompted us to look into the website and actually look into what are the sort of motivations behind ideas right so i'm just going to like mm-hmm. quote uh, from the website uh, so just sure. so that uh, the audience can you know have an idea of what ideas does so the breakdown is an, it's the institute for democracy and economic affairs a non-profit research institute based in Malaysia, dedicated to promoting solutions to public policy challenges, and the vision is a Malaysia that upholds the principles of liberty and justice. I mean that that's a very big, like you know, promise, right? Um, so I just I'm just wondering, in you know what what does this mean, you know, in the Malaysian context, and you know how does ideas actually uphold this these principles?
2: Yeah, well, that quote. Could- uh, a Malaysia that upholds the principles of liberty and justice is exactly what's in the proclamations, both the proclamation of Medeca uh, and the proclamation of Malaysia. Uh, that phrase, liberty and justice, is used. Of course, um, everywhere around the world, people see liberty, people see justice, and there's a million different interpretations of what that means, which is why, to me, it's important to look at the context you know, and, and, and to see what the other actions and words and policies were to try and understand what it was that... Tunku was getting at when he said that. Um, And I think there are obviously different degrees of agreement about whether a particular interpretation of this is correct. But I think, again, most Malaysians would agree that that encompasses the uh, concept of freedom of expression. It encompasses the concept of uh, the rule of law. Um, And it encompasses, I, I suppose, the. The agreements that are made between, that were made, you know, between the states when they created the federation, but also any agreements that are subsequently made between uh, government and citizens through legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, how does that translate when we when we talk about promoting solutions to public policy challenges? It means, for example, there's a broader question here about how do think tanks in general uh, pursue their objectives. One way is sort of very specific. uh, uh, work with uh, politicians directly, you know, policymakers, uh, civil servants, trying to get them to um, adopt a particular piece of legislation. Uh, but the other side is more broad, sort of in the in in the wider uh, democratic space that is available. How do we steer a, a national conversation, or or start a national conversation on topics like, um, you know? Uh, so one example that Ideas um, commented on quite a lot in the last few years is the separation of the role of the attorney General, for example, between mm-hmm. um, on the one hand being the chief legal advisor uh, to the government, but also the chief prosecutor, right? Because in many other countries where the role of the AG was combined, they've separated it. So that's an example of separation of powers, right? And that's an example of, of well, you know, when, when Tukhul says liberty and justice we connected back to that right? because um, uh, separation of powers um, and rule of law was one of those founding concepts. In today's context, it means we should perhaps separate the role of the attorney general, right? There are more easier, straightforward examples, right? Which is, um, you know, we, we should not have draconian laws that uh, clamp down on media freedom. It means, mm-hmm. you know, that the judiciary should be independent and have no uh, interference from the executive. So that, you know, I think there's a most straightforward example. I'm saying that because it's an example of how we link, we, we, we try always to link back to at least our interpretation of what Tunku Abdul Rahman meant when he said liberty and justice.
0: Um, so I think it's interesting that you mentioned the role of think tank in influencing legislations, um, uh, public discourse. So because the, um, there are a lot of think tanks in the world Um, But how, what is the objective of a a think tank and maybe ideas specifically, do you intend to uh, affect decision makers or do you just want to encourage um, intellectual discourse among the community in in Malaysia or is it both sides?
2: Well, to me, it's always been both. Uh, But I have to say, look, I I should, there's a big proviso to, to all of this, which is I am chairman of the board, but I'm not the chief executive. Right, so I think the exact proportion of what ideas of how ideas achieves its mission is something you'll have to ask Trisha Yo, our new CEO, uh, in, in in greater detail. But I think to me, generally, the, the role of a think tank is uh, to to do both, um, because uh, one cannot one cannot exist without the other, really. I mean, uh, at least in a democracy, in theory, mm-hmm. um, you know, politicians um, react or are influenced by uh, what uh, the people want, what the demos uh, wants, right? So um, you you can you can try and uh, you can try and convince uh, policymakers that a certain piece of legislation is brilliant and wonderful and awesome, but at the end of the day, if their constituents, and I don't mean geographical, I mean if their electoral constituency um, is not going to be um, interested in that, then there's very little point. Yeah. uh in in going that route right so we have to create a demand from uh in from the public who will then not only want certain reforms to happen but then to then subsequently keep them uh, keep the policymakers to account um once they these things are enacted and to continually keep up keep up that pressure so that 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 public education element is
0: is uh, is important. Great, and um, yeah. it, you also mentioned the uh, the period of Tungku Agam. somehow it just got me thinking back to my days uh in the US when um my friends had different interpretation of what does the uh, founding fathers of the US yeah. really want yeah. and yeah. what they um and how they interpret their constitution. Yes, so I'm absolutely. just curious um in in your own perspective in your own words. Yeah. What is this medical spirit as envisioned by our,
2: exactly. our forefathers, really? Yeah, okay. So this is a big topic, which, yeah. I, 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 which well, it's a big topic, Definitely. conceptually, but it's a big concept for me because um, this was a topic that I tried to tackle in in a lecture 20, five years ago, 2015, called Healing the Nation. And uh, the, recently, the Institute for Diplomacy and Foreign Relations asked me to do uh, Healing the Nation 2.0. and the i mean the the the, which which i can share the text with you and and i like you when i was in the u.s i noticed exactly the same phenomenon i mean i was in the u.s in 2005 2006 i went back in 2013 for for a fellowship and it struck me that u.s citizens are able to look at their constitution uh, and to sing their anthem and to fly their flag but they can mean completely different things um, to those people, uh, you know, yeah. among any given group of, of citizens, and I think that is the path towards uh, division and uh, disaster. Really, I think we, we we and we see that today in the U.S., where there's the, polarization to the extent that it seems implacably two groups are implacably opposed to each other, and it's very very difficult to to create any sort of consensus as to what the constitution really means or what the founding fathers really wanted. So it's always been my, this, you know, my, my deepest, uh, hope that in Malaysia, we never, um, get to that level of polarization. So what, you know, what can we do about it? Right. Um, that's why I think it's extremely important for all Malaysian citizens to at least understand not necessarily agree 100% but to understand that those that there were certain things that the Medeca generation uh, uh, intended to do that received legitimacy right we have to you see the, the 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 concept of legitimacy is very important because obviously nothing sort of has a value nothing has any legitimacy unless in a democracy unless you can demonstrate that um democratic processes were used to arrive at certain uh, in a, a certain situations. Uh, so in our case, we have a federal constitution. So uh, I think the vast majority of Malaysians will, will accept that that federal constitution is legitimate. I think the vast gen- uh, proportion of Malaysians will also th- therefore uh, agree that the various governments we've had over the years are also legitimate because it flows from that supreme law of the land, which is the federal constitution. Now, that is not to say that today, there are people with very different visions. There are Malaysians who want Malaysia to be um, you know, a, 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 an, an, an Islamic state, whatever that means to them. There are mm-hmm. Malaysians who, you know, there are still Malaysians who who want to see this country turn into a socialist republic, whatever that means to them, again. Uh, I think that's fine, you know. I think if you want to believe those things, that's up. You know, I, I'm not gonna um, say you can't believe in those things, but you have to accept the uh, legitimacy of what has been agreed before. And I think the problem is when you have groups who are willing to sort of discard that legitimacy and just or you know, or declare that all of that is illegitimate, and therefore we must now start afresh with a new. Um, you know, uh, state in whatever vision that they, according to their own political philosophy. Because if you have that uh, approach, then the inevitable conclusion is that no agreement has any legitimacy whatsoever.
1: If you can just simply yeah, yeah, change things
2: right. uh, like that, uh, then then uh, that's not a that's that, that is not a way towards a stable uh, nation. Uh, so to me, it's important that we inculcate uh this uh this consensus about what it is that uh that generation um intended to see for malaysia and then also i think to to then accept that various that there were various uh attempts subsequently to rearticulate that uh vision each of which also had their own legitimacy to some extent so the ruku Negara in 1970 right we all we all know what the ruku Negara mm. says uh, and I think again, the vast majority of Malaysians can get on board and mm-hmm. uh, you know and say again interpretation is an issue, but I think the vast majority of Malaysians can say, "Yeah, you know I, I think the therookingar is a good thing um and then we can look at um you know vision twenty twenty right yeah. so that was you know a vision that was articulated again by a government that had legitimacy. It must count for something um, so um it's it's uh so how do we prevent that polarization from from happening i think it's through uh i think it's 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 through acknowledging efforts of the government uh over successive governments who are trying to create that uh, those articulations of 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 a national destiny you know through rukun negara or vision 2020 or even you know through one malaysia at the time but it's also through uh public uh, education and that's that's what that's another one of the things which i I, i've liked you know which i often talk about the need for schools and i'm sure you know i know you spoke to natusha recently Mm -hmm. um you know the need for (laughs) schools to equip malaysians with the tools to um understand or or or, um to absorb and interpret their own history uh, for themselves right Number one, to equip young Malaysians with the tools to, to interpret and understand history, but mm-hmm. also then to, to present that national story which historically has received legitimacy, right? So okay. to then talk about, you know, the creation of the federal constitution, you know, the whole Medecah story, um, and then not to neglect the counter you know, alternative is to say that, yes, there were people who disagreed with what happened. Um, but this is what most people at the time agreed to do. Um, and I think once you have that sort of genealogy of institutions, then today it's much, much easier to then um, uh, uh, you know, speak to a young Malaysian and say, you know, this is why uh, we have a Dewan Rakyat. This is what it is supposed to do for you you know, this is why we have a judiciary. This is what the judiciary is supposed to do for you. You know, this is why we have the police. It, you know, it flows, its authority flows from the constitution, which had its legitimacy all the way back. So I think it's very, it's it's very important to create that understanding of that um, um, institutional evolution that links back to a point of uh, of legitimacy. Um, uh, And I think once you do that, we, we help to prevent that polarization that is taking place. Because I think, again, you know, it's, it's fine if people have radically different visions about what they want the future of Malaysia to be. But they cannot, uh, to me, it, it must be, it must take cognizance of what has been agreed before and must recognize that what has been agreed before has legitimacy. And I could go way wow. back. I mean, this is you know, this is, this is a recent. This is new, I mean, the other, the other thing. The other thing I talk about in my in my healing the nation lectures is is to point out that many of these concepts are not necessarily another critic. One criticism that was leveled at um, ideas early on is that you know, oh, this is such a Western, you know, this is a neo-imperialist, neo-colonialist project, which which of course I completely reject, uh, and particularly because many of these concepts that we Speak about today, have their own origins in our own uh, you know pre-modern history, um, you know. So of course everyone knows about Malacca, right? Uh, okay, of course you have the Undang Undang yeah. Malacca <laughs> the Undang Undang Laut Malacca. These are wonderful examples of um, of of uh, uh, rule of law. Um, you know that that the ancient and if you read if you read the text, actually it is it is remarkably progressive in many many places but there are also other examples i like to talk about the uh which is dated the site nakib alatas dated it back to 1303 um and here we have a very clear statement you know the the ruler is subject to a higher law right so then we have um you know that's another expression of rule of law um and then we can look at policies. You can look at why it was that Malacca was so prosperous. Well, it's because um, it had, you know, comparatively, you know, uh, an open uh, trade policy. It, and uh, you know, I think so. There's evidence to suggest it had. It, there were lower taxes that attracted uh, the traders from all over the world to do trade there. It had, and of course, the institutional stability that existed. Um, I cannot. I cannot I cannot finish this uh, without talking about Negros Milan. So Negros Milan, <laughs> there was the adat uh, property, uh, and then the adat that that descend from that Minangkabau origins that evolved within Negros Milan that provided um, the ways in which justice was dispensed that provided for how property was to be. Uh, inherited and transferred and divided. Yeah. So all of these things are, uh, you know, so, so I think when, when someone says, oh, you know, these are Western concepts, I completely reject that. We, we have our own uh, um, uh, history of uh, these concepts right here uh, in, in our own
1: region. Wow, oh, I think uh, you just condensed your whole lecture in, inside uh, <laughs> fifteen minutes for us, and I think I think we all of us appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I think I think this is one of the parts we'll process. need to do some editing later
2: yes. <laughs> because that was rambling. No,
1: oh. no, but that, that that was amazing because uh, you know I think a lot of us, you know, I personally, you know, I I didn't do SPM Sejarah, so actually I missed a lot of what you said uh, in terms of developing my own understanding of Malaysia's history.
2: Well, I have to say that SPM Sajara Jara <laughs> is not necessarily
1: the way in which you have <laughs> learned okay. this idea, right? <laughs> I think,
2: I, think I, I, I have had many conversations with teachers about the deficiencies that you know that, that in the way that all these things are taught, Uh, and that is well, that's a topic for another a different day. Time, yeah. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. Okay. Uh. Yes. Yeah, so I mean because uh you know we talked about you know your your time in ideas and how it developed into yeah. you know talking about um the future of malaysia and what we see merdeka as impacting how you know the youth will see malaysia in the future right so you know all of this as well as you said you even said it just now all of this also needs to be sort of incorporated in the democratic process right and you know and that is one of the fundamental things that ideas pushed for and i think in in terms of relating it back, uh, you know, to the next question is, you know, how, what is your thought on the maturity of Malaysia's democracy? And, you know, how how has it developed, you know, as you talked about all this undang-undang from the past, uh, you know, and how does, you know, Malaysia's democracy actually develop throughout time from independence? or Even if you want to push it back before independence, I mean, that's up to you up till now. Yeah. And how do you see yeah. it moving forward?
2: Um, well, there is... Uh there's no easy answer because you can look at various different examples which you know in, the, in even in the last 10 years which point to great progress and you can point to other examples which suggest um you know going backwards um but i, I think maybe again the story of ideas sort of helps to uh give this a, a better context i mean I, when ideas came back when religious think tank was formed and then when we made ideas Uh, when we established ideas back in Malaysia, uh, this was coming, you know, this was still the time during or after uh, Patlah, right? And I think one of the things that many people in civil society uh, noticed about Patla's premiership was an opening up of democratic space, right? There was no way uh, ideas could have existed in the premiership before Patlah. But during and after, there was sort of there was sort of greater uh, activism. I mean, there's always been activism. I, I I do not in any way denigrate the work of so many um, civil society actors over the decades. But I think the ease at which it became to set up um, a CSO, the ease with which to then, you know, um, go around publicly and say this is what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, and, and get donations towards this cause, I think. And, I'm not, you know, of course, there's always been a, a you, you, yes, you have those foundations which have always tried to promote, um, you know, cancer research or, or, you know, tackle various particular health problems mm-hmm. or environmental problems. But I think a more, I suppose, uh, ideologically rooted think tank was probably, quite a a novelty, right, at the time that, in Malaysia at least, at the time we were doing it. And we were able to do it because of that uh, broader democratic space uh, that existed. And the rate of change since then has been uh, tremendous because there's been a mushrooming of other uh, think tanks and CSOs, which of course Mm -hmm. we welcome. Uh, I think it's very important that uh, no one should have a monopoly of ideas. Uh, Everyone should be able to um articulate different visions about what they what they want to see for the country um and to tackle the same issues with different lenses, that's fine. Um, but um the the I think the, the the connections with the political process is what has is is probably what's been the most illuminating because in in a, during the premiership uh after that if we're talking about, yeah, I mean, it's actually 2009, 2010. I think there was a lot of optimism that that democratic space would continue to uh, expand. Uh, but three or four years later, it became, you know, that the signals were mixed. I think there were some of the uh, evidence of, you know, authoritarian measures were coming back. Uh, you know, use of the Sedition Act, uh, use of... Um, other uh, repressive uh, laws against people who were speaking out on
1: mm-hmm.
2: financial scandals, for example um and this is uh, uh, but but I think and, and of course that that you know everyone listening to this will will know how that then fed into the uh, political campaigning ahead of the twenty eighteen general election and the result of that. Uh, general election, and then of course, uh, subsequently in February that uh, you know there was another change of government, and and then so some people are saying, okay, so does that mean that all of that, all of that, you know, all of that momentum um, in a certain direction towards 2018 is all is all of that now going to reverse? Uh, personally, I don't think so. I think that um, civil society is here to stay because civil society has become sufficiently entrenched, I think, in Malaysian public life. Um, And um, this is sort of, this is augmented by the fact that we have um, uh, social media, um, you know, uh, and greater access to different uh, sources of information, Um, although at the same time, I would acknowledge the great danger of echo chambers um, mm-hmm. which, 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 which is another phenomenon that needs to be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, and, and if you look at the political competition today, right? so you have new political parties that have emerged in the last two years and they, you had a new political party announced a few days ago. Recently, right? yeah. And, <laughs> yep. yeah. And so what are they going to say right? If you have so many political parties who are competing for the same demographic, I, to me, it, it, you cannot just uh, serve the same old message from before, particularly when you now have so much more competition. And I think this is a good thing, because it means that you have to innovate, you have to come up with something more compelling uh, for, to, to, you know, to win. Um, and while some people would Interpret that as okay, we need to get more money and bribe more people. I think a lot more uh, people a lot more in the political arena would say uh, we need to offer better policies we need to offer a better vision uh, so I think because of that we should be seeing more um, you know, more appeals to checks and balances to better you know, better governance um, and I think we've, we already see Uh, evidence of that within many political parties, right? Where you have sort of a new guard saying, look, we cannot just keep screaming the same old messages that appeal Mm -hmm. to our, Mm -hmm. you know, ethno-nationalist core, but we should talk about, um, you know, good governance and decentralization of certain powers, of different ways to do infrastructure development. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think this is, that's a good development. And I think in the long run, that um, is something that will strengthen our democracy.
0: Hmm. That's super interesting. Thanks so much, Nuku Um, So given your very um, interesting background, we'd like to ask another question, which is how can the monarchy promote or assist a healthy democracy in Malaysia?
2: Yeah, so there are several ways to approach this question. I think one way to approach it is to... is, is, is sometimes this question is being asked in a way that presumes that there is some inherent contradiction between having a monarchy and being a democracy. Uh, but again, this is why it's so important to look back to the Medica generation, because it was very, very clear that back then, uh, most Malaysians did, or Malayans, and then subsequently Malaysians, did not see an inherent contradiction. Um, so that's the first sort of thing to remember, first bucket, the second bucket, is to, another way to sort of counter that assumption is to look at um, comparisons around the world. I think you can look at numerous um, indices uh, of democracy, you know, that rank the various uh, democratic countries around the world. Um, And despite the fact that monarchies are a minority of all countries in the world, a very large number of them, or I should qualified, constitutional monarchies, um, are among the best democracies uh, in the world, um, the likes of uh, oh, okay. Denmark and Sweden, of the United Kingdom. Canada and Australia, of course, are constitutional monarchies um, of Japan. Uh, and you look at the Middle East, uh, I think it's been observed that the, the, those countries which are monarchies uh, tend to do better institutionally and in terms of freedoms than those who aren't. So Morocco and Jordan. Uh, for example, again, I have to qualify, constitutional monarchies. So I think um, in Malaysia, we should, that's the second bucket, right? So then why is this the case, right? Why is it the case that uh, monarchies can be actually be very, very successful democracies? Um, anyway, this, again, this, that, this could be a, a topic for an entirely different um, podcast. But I would say that there are several ingredients that make this possible, which is number one, it, by having a person who is different, uh, a head of state who is different from the head of government, and one who is appointed not through a political process, you are able to then have uh, an apolitical figure of unity uh, that doesn't rely on political patronage or pandering to political parties in order to enjoy that position. Uh, that's number one. And and I think there are a number of things that flow from that as well, because I think in most of these countries, um, the uh, military um, owes their allegiance to the monarch, and not to the, um, not to a politician. So, again, so this this protects, um, you know, this reduces um, the possibility of a military coup. Um, I'm not saying that not, not, not this is not necessarily true in every case, but it is just this is just one feature which I've observed uh, is true in many uh, monarchy, constitutional monarchies. Um, another would be the fact that um, in many of these countries, the monarchy is uh, uh, plays a part in public life beyond the constitutional roles as well. So that sort of integrates them into the nation. So what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about being uh, you know, chancellors of universities, of being patrons and trustees of 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 various foundations, um, and of, of being involved in many different aspects of the nation, that provides um, again this this sort of figures of unity that are apolitical. Uh, that you know, and each one of these helps to provide stability. I think in a way that uh, in, a, in a in a in a in a republic is uh, more difficult uh can be more difficult to achieve, and you know perhaps you can look at the example of the United States where you know it is an elected president who is the under in chief um and the you know a, a, and this particular commander in chief has particular ideas about what its military <laughs> his military his military should do um yeah. uh, and 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 the family of you know so so i think so that's that's all sort of let's bring it back now to Malaysia, right? So how does and how can the Malaysian monarchy promote a healthy democracy in Malaysia? And I provided those two approaches. And I think I've spoken about the international one quite a bit. Um, I would encourage every uh, Malaysian to read uh, the very first royal address, the Titah Ucapan, uh, in the Dewan Raya. So this is the 12th of September, 1959, I think. You can find it on the Hansard. Uh, yeah, I think it's a You can find it on the Hansard website, and you will see what the first young di Agong uh, said about, you know, what he thought of Parliament, about what he thought uh, Malay- uh, parliamentary democracy was about. Uh, and I think that is um, quite um, enlightening uh, um, to me. Um, but um so but that's like that so today how do i see i think some of the things which i mentioned earlier about the various roles that the monarchies have um in terms of being active in um okay so the being being head of being head of state i think obviously provides that sort of apolitical uh uh figurehead role that i was talking about um then the uh the role of uh, head of Islam is, is an important one as well, because Islam in Malaysia is something that's been here for centuries and it's de- evolved in a, in a particular way. I think as Islam becomes more politicized and you have different groups claiming to be more authentic Muslims or more correct, uh, again, it's important to, uh, uh, to recognize a particular genealogy to how religion has developed in Malaysia, and the rulers provide that uh, platform. Um, the ruler, I mean, of course, the Yangtipan Agong is the head of the armed forces, and the rulers are colonels and chiefs of various uh, regiments within the army and of the navy and of the air force. So again, this means that our soldiers, um, you know, it, it, it becomes much more difficult for a politician to order a general to do something because the general has, is, has made his allegiance to the king. Now, this is not a frivolous point. There were, at, some, at, 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 you know, at a couple of occasions in the last couple of years, and particularly during the time of the election, um, were, of the 2018 election, uh, there were various people s- s- speculating you know, would the uh, would, uh, you know, uh, the politicians try and use the military in certain in certain ways. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very reassuring to speak to members of the military who says no way, there's no way if ex uh, politician uh, asks us to do something that we will do that our allegiance is to the king. So that's mm-hmm. just one concrete example it? that I that I that I encountered, that shows how that check and balance was uh, uh, you know a real thing, and of course, embedded within the constitution are many cases of appointments that require the uh, consent or um, consultation with the uh, conference of rulers. Um, so senior, so, you know, the chief justice, for example, other senior appointments within certain institutions. You know, it is it is not merely a case of the government of the day uh, push, you know, demanding that a certain candidate must be appointed to something. It also requires the, i um, in consultation with the conference of rulers to, to the, to make uh, that appointment. So I think this has an eff- I mean, that that method of appointment already has an effect in deterring bad appointments. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even if a bad appointment was suggested, that there was a, there is a process to prevent that. From happening. So again, I think if you look back through the archives, you will see a, some cases where um, controversial judges might have been recommended to for elevation, but the Conference of Rulers then deliberated, and you know, and another person was appointed instead. So that is um, that's another example of where checks and balances uh, are in process. Uh, chancellors of public universities. And i think this is this is uh something which i am being involved in u uh, k m myself it really it really uh is not it, 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 yes yes it, it, there's there's that ceremonial aspect of receiving the scroll the interests of the ruler so my father read um uh law um and so there's you know there's this um you know there's this lecture series which has been created that there is a a contribution that is made towards the academic uh, direction. Um, Another example is the, uh, in in sports associations, I think everyone knows the affinity that uh, the late uh, Sultan of Fahang and and the current uh, Sultan of Fahang, the present Yangtipatuan Agung has for football. Uh, But um, you know, my father, um, is patron of Negri's Milan squash and also uh, Malaysia, you know, squash Malaysia. Um, mm-hmm. The Sultan of Klanganu competed, won gold medal in the uh, SEA Games in his equestrian equestrianism. So that 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 involvement in sports can have a literal benefit with a gold medal, but I think it also um, enables Malaysia to maybe um, punch above our weight in international. Um, you know, in international bodies, uh, because of that uh, royal involvement. Uh, another example is more widely in certain foundations and trustees. You know, a lot of the um, foundations that exist, uh, which receive royal patronage, have have sort of cast a light on neglected uh, issues and neglected uh, pursuits. Um, for sometimes, so take songket for example, right? Uh, the the sultana Nozahira Hartungganu again, um, you know, was involved in the setting up that uh, foundation that really uh, helped to elevate songket uh, from mm-hmm. from you know from a from a from a yeah. position that it was being forgotten, and you know now you have weavers um, who are sort of bringing that craft back alive. Um, the Tunku Aziza uh, Fertility Foundation, right? So our Raja Suri Agong um, uh, had, uh, um, you know, had reasons to be involved in in that uh, to set up that foundation, um, and that's cast a light on the, uh, you know, on the plight of uh, women with uh, f- fertility issues. There, you know, and that there, there're numerous. Uh, other examples where this is the case so i think all of these things this is a very very long answer i think this will have to be seriously edited (laughs) but in short (laughs) short the role of malaysia's monarchy in promoting a healthy democracy in malaysia is constitutional but also goes beyond the constitution in being involved in so many other institutions that provide stability um, and help cast a light on things which you know the politicians might necessarily uh, not taken interest in. I could talk about February. I mean, in February, you had... You know, imagine if in February, we did not have a young divotan right? What would have happened with two different parties claiming they have yeah, I mean, a statutory really and they have a yeah. the majority, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a clear example of where um, you need an arbiter who is above politics who is able to make a decision that is in line with the constitution that provides stability to the country and that's exactly what happened mm-hmm. in february now obviously there are some people who are not going to be uh, happy with that but um you but as a constitutional monarch those actions in you know in in performing that role um the constitution um has to be followed and i have heard no serious um contest to the constitution constitutionality of what um, what happened or the decision that was made Yep.
0: yes I think there are a lot of examples there that our listeners can definitely pause and digest because uh, um, I think you make it very obvious on how the way the monarchy interacts with our community kind of shapes the conversation and shapes the community in Malaysia as well um, so you are actually pushing our last question Mm-hmm. So we asked this question to all of our guests. Um, so, uh, but it's kind of hard to ask it uh, to to ask it to you because our question goes: if you are not doing this, what would you be doing? But then because you are doing so many things, so I do you have an answer? <laughs> <laughs> so if you are not doing whatever you are doing now, what what would you uh, what, what would two be doing? Uh, two, I, I think do there, do are two <laughs> there are two different. There uh, are two
2: different. Well, I do try to do them, but I would have. I guess I would, if I, if I was better at these things, I would be doing them full time, (laughs) playing squash or tennis and playing piano. Uh, that's, that's what I, those are my two, uh, I mean, if you, if you count racket sports in one category, I think, uh, racket sports and, um, music are my real passions. If I was better at them, I would do those things professionally, but I am not so they are they remain my hobbies um and i and i focus on on the other work that i've that i've mentioned
1: yeah nice at least uh you know some pe- some people couldn't you know take actually take some time to <laughs> answer that question but you you have to really think yeah. okay, like what what actually would i do in a different life <laughs>
2: yeah
1: so yeah okay us- i did i know you you you
2: sound like you're gonna round off but can i answer a question which because I think, my, yeah, my, I think so. my answers on ideas were quite uh, broad, but I have four specific examples about <laughs> the policy areas which ideas contributed to. If I can answer those, sure, sure. yeah, um, yeah, so that'd be amazing. So if it? you want to talk about, so if you want to talk specifically about in, in terms of policy, um, you know, where ideas has contributed, um, uh, maybe I can just mention. Uh, four. Uh, one is when we worked with the Ministry of Finance, uh, the procurement division within the Ministry of Finance, uh, to get uh, negotiated contracts uh, published online uh, for for public viewing. So more transparency in the way uh, government contracts were being um, were being issued. Uh, now the second one was, and I'm very proud of this because it's not something that we sort of expected to be doing. Uh, Rare diseases. So rare diseases are diseases which uh, affect a very, very small uh, percentage of the population. But we've been working with the Ministry of Health. Obviously, this is before COVID. uh, To 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 uh, create a policy, a national uh, framework uh, for rare diseases, Um, and hopefully this 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 will be continued uh, under the present government after um, COVID. Um, goes away inshallah. Um, the third example would our continuous uh, uh, commentary on uh, the need for a, a political financing act uh, and transparency in public procurement, and both of these things were incorporated into the national anti-corruption plan. Uh, and the last example is our uh, commentary on um, through our policy papers, which are all online by the way, on the need for a rental policy. Uh, Within housing, and I think this is something that the Ministry of Housing uh, has adopted. Now there are many other examples. You know, when you talk about the broad brush stuff, like oh, the need for an independent judiciary, the need for freedom of expression, you know, there are so many other organisations, you know, talking about that, pushing for the same things, and no one organisation can take credit. But I think that's the, you know, that's the beauty of uh, of a a healthy civil society space, uh, which is that. Collectively, our voices do count for something, um, and they they are a conduit for the feelings of a very very large number of Malaysians to be um, you know to come together and be articulated cohesively uh, in a way that policymakers um, are listened to.
1: Nice, I mean that's a okay. caveat at the end. I think I think that's a good you know good time for us to uh, close up. I mean, Tukuzin honestly that was like an hour full of uh, knowledge
2: (laughs) I I made made most of it
1: so you know we we truly appreciate it uh, and I think our listeners can actually appreciate uh, a lot of this I think we you know at 10 o'clock at night I think it's a good time to sleep and digest all of this So, you yeah, know, um, we appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for coming to the show. You know, we would love yeah. to actually maybe next time we bring you to talk about all the different mini topics that we <laughs> could have expanded yeah, we our <laughs> yeah. that we touched yeah. earlier, you know. So, thank you sure. very much. Sure.